Today's scripture reading comes from the first book of Psalms, verses 1 through 6. The way of the righteous and the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thank you, Steve. <clears throat> so we're starting a new series today on the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 1. For those of you who are starting to wonder, will we be in Psalms for 150 weeks? Don't worry. Uh, we're just going to pick a few here along the way for the rest of the summer. We'll probably be here about five or six weeks. Uh, I'm excited. I think it'll build on what we talked about last week at the retreat, which is just this idea that is, as Christians, we do have emotions. And Psalms deal with emotions pretty explicitly. And on top of that, there's just something different about being in the Psalms. And so I think this will be helpful for us here as we conclude the summer and we head into the new school year to do a few weeks here in the Psalms. So let me pray and ask that God would bless our time today in Psalm 1. Uh, Father, we, uh, we do come before you and we want to earnestly acknowledge that we need you. Uh, we need you. Every hour of every day, we need you. And so, Father, we're praying that today you would work through the preaching of your word, that as we study Psalm 1, that we would have a desire to be the righteous one, that we would have a desire to delight in your word, that we would be like the tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Father, this is our prayer, that we would read Psalm 1 and that we would choose to go down the path of the righteous one. So, Father, we pray that today as we study your word, our hearts would be renewed in our affection for you that we would have a greater desire for you, and that we would have a desire to make much of you. So, Father, we pray that you would work in an unusual way today, that you would work and that you would work through your word in a way that we could clearly and totally attribute to you only. So, Father, we pray that you would do a mighty and great thing. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think it's safe to say that we live in a world that is full of choices and options. For example, if you're in the city and you're looking for a slice of pizza, there are quite a few options for you. In fact, one newspaper article in 2012 said there are 362 pizza places in Manhattan alone. And I'm sure that number has fluctuated a little bit since 2012, but the, the point obviously is still the same. There are a lot of options for pizza. And that's not just true in the city. That's true in Westchester. New Yorkers love their pizza, and we have lots of options for that. But listen, it's not just pizza. Almost everything in this country, we have options. A couple of weeks ago, I got online to look for a weed whacker. And by the way, I'm hoping that's a term that carries over to the East Coast also. That's what we called it in the Midwest, the weed whacker. But you know, the thing that trims your weeds in your yard. Whatever it's called here, that's what I was looking for online. And so I got on Amazon, and it quickly became obvious to me that the issue was not going to be finding a weed whacker. It was going to be selecting which one. Because there's all kinds of options. And if you've ever been on Amazon or any other online marketplace, you know that that's the case for almost anything you can think of. No matter how random the object is, there are option after option after option. 
For example, I got on Amazon this week and I looked up gerbil feeders because I thought that was the most random thing I could think of. And so I looked up gerbil feeders and sure enough, there are 63 different types of gerbil feeders. Now to be fair, not all 63 matches I would say were actually gerbil feeders, but at least 50 of them were. Now listen, I'm all for the proper feeding of gerbils if that's your thing, but do we really need 50 different styles of gerbil feeders? But this is the world we live in. There are unlimited options when it comes to almost everything. When you walk down the grocery store, aisle, grocery store aisle, you realize that there are choices when it comes to almost everything. And I think we take that same mindset and we apply it to the way that we live. We think that there are many different ways that we can live. In fact, when we use certain phrases, this is exactly what we convey. When we say things like, to each his own, or to use more modern language, you do you. What we mean in those phrases is that there's lots of different ways you can live and you should just pick the option that makes the most sense for you. But the thing is, I'm not convinced that the way we live, that choosing a way to live is the same way as choosing a slice of pizza or even selecting a gerbil feeder. Because what if I told you that when you choose the way to live, there are not unlimited options like there would be for choosing pizza or choosing a gerbil feeder. In fact, that there's only two. The Bible is clear on this reality. There are not 362 different options for the way to live. There are not 63 different options for the way to live. There are only two. And so we live in a world full of choices. We live in a world full of options. But the Bible would say there's not a lot of options when it comes to the path you're going to choose. There's only two. And this is not just the message of Psalm 1. This is the message of the entire Bible. In fact, as a prime example of this, we might turn to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And in Matthew 7 in particular, Jesus drives this point home relentlessly. In the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, at least six different times Jesus makes this point. There are only two ways to live. He gives the analogy of the hard way and the easy way, the narrow gate and the wide gate, the good fruit and the bad fruit, the healthy tree and the diseased tree, the good foundation and the bad foundation, the house that falls and the house that stands. The point that he's making with all of those illustrations is there's only two ways to live. It's the same thing that the psalmist is saying here. There's only two ways. We may live in a world that's full of options. We may live in a world that people say, do what you want to do. Live how you want to live. But the Bible is clear. There are only two ways you can live. The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. That's all. And so let's again turn to Psalm 1 here. And I think we'll see that clearly. And I, I think out of reverence for God's word, let's just stand today as we read Psalm 1, 1 to 6. So if, if you don't mind just standing with me here. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, you can be seated here. And before we dive into the heart of Psalm 1, it's probably helpful for us to take a step back here. Since we're starting a series today on the book of Psalms, it's probably helpful for us just to give a little bit of an overview of what the Psalms are meant to do. 
Last week at our retreat, we were talking about the topic of emotions, and our retreat speaker, Lyle Drury, for each each session, picked a psalm that he would preach from to talk about emotions. That's not an accident. It's not an accident that he would go to the book of Psalms when he's talking about emotions, because the Psalms are filled with emotion. They're a collection of 150 different poems expressing a wide variety of different emotions. And as such, they are an invaluable resource to the Christian because they give us an idea of how we should think about our emotions and how we should correctly display our emotions to God. And so what we need to do is we need to keep in mind as we read the Psalms that this is the way they are written, that they are poetry and that they are meant to convey emotions. We need to keep that in mind because this is a different genre than, say, the book of Romans. If you go to the book of Romans, this is going to be heavy on theology, heavy on doctrine. That's not what Psalms is doing. If you're trying to get your theological ducks signed up, you should go to the book of Romans or some other book that's more theologically centered and is meant to be teaching us theology and is meant to be teaching us doctrine. That's not to say that we can't learn theology or that we can't learn doctrine from the book of Psalms. What it it is to say, though, is that the book of Psalms is meant to be something that conveys emotion through poetry. And so if you're looking for a place to express your emotions, the Psalms is a great place to go. There's a reason why when we're comforting people at a funeral or when we're comforting people in a time of pain, oftentimes we go to the book of Psalms because this is a book that captures the emotions of what it means to be a Christian. Psalm 1 is no exception to that. And so we need to keep that in mind here as we read. There are different genres in Scripture that are trying to do different things. The book of Psalms is poetry and it's meant to convey emotions. Now, it's also not an accident that in Psalm 1, we have the start of the Psalms. This is a gateway to the rest of the Psalms. The reason why the Holy Spirit and His infinite wisdom starts here with Psalm 1 is because this is an entranceway into the rest of the Psalms. And the message of Psalm 1, I think, is clear. There's a contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And throughout Psalm 1, the six verses of Psalm 1, this is what the psalmist is conveying to us, that there is a difference between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, a contrast. And so our goal today is just to simply look at that contrast. And the psalmist will do this, or he will make this contrast for us in several different ways. First, he contrasts the actions of the righteous and the wicked. Look at verses 1 and 2. He's contrasting the actions here. Verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So here's what we can learn about the righteous from verse 1. They do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. They do not stand in the way of sinners. They do not sit in the seat of scoffers. Or, to maybe use language that uh, makes it a clearer what we're talking about, Derek Kinner puts it this way, they do not accept the advice of the wicked, they are not a part of the way of sinners, and they do not adopt the attitude of scoffers. I think it's implied that the opposite is true of the wicked. The opposite is true of the wicked, that they do walk in the counsel of the wicked, that they do stand in the way of sinners, that they do sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, here's the thing I think we need to acknowledge. Very few people I know would raise their hands and would say, oh yeah, that's me, I walk in the counsel of the wicked. Oh, that's true. I stand in the way of sinners. And yes, I'm sitting in the seat of scoffers. That's me. I know very few people who would acknowledge that. Now, maybe you would say it's because we don't use language like sitting in the seat of scoffers. And that's fair. 
But I think the point is that we don't acknowledge or we aren't willing to say that we are the ones who walk in the counsel of the wicked, that we are the ones who sit in the seat of scoffers. But the fact of the matter is that this verse, verse 1, this idea of walking in the counsel of the wicked, of sitting in the seat of scoffers, of standing in the way of sinners, describes every single person in this world apart from Jesus Christ. Every person in the world. In our natural sinful state, we follow the ways of the world and the sinful patterns of those around us. We may not call it sitting in the seat of scoffers, but that is exactly what it is. For example, let me present to you my life prior to Jesus Christ. Listen, when I was growing up, I consistently did the right thing morally. I've shared this phrase before that went around the Midwest, and I'm not saying we use this phrase all the time, but we'd say, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't hang with those who do. That was my life growing up. I was making the consistently right choices. I wasn't hanging out with the partiers. I wasn't doing anything wild. I was living a consistently moral life. But what you need to understand is that although that was true, and although people would have labeled me as a good kid, I was certainly, and without a shadow of a doubt, walking in the way of sinners. And what I mean by that is this, that I was not living for the glory of God. I was not submitting to the reign and rule of God in my life. I was not acknowledging that I am a sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Everything I was doing was for my own glory and for my own purposes. I was working hard in school so I could get good grades and so that I could go to a good college, so that I could get a good job, so that I could make good money. It was about me. I was making sure that I was working hard in sports so that I could get the glory, me, I could get the glory of being on the athletic field. I was working to be popular so that I could have relationships and so that I could be noticed. I was in dating relationships so that I could have the fulfillment of having a relationship. Everything was about me. And the thing is, and this is important, even though I was clearly walking in the way of sinners, people would have labeled me as a good person. In fact, they would have noticed my church attendance and they probably would have said, oh yeah, he's a Christian. But make no mistake about it, I was walking in the way of sinners. I was sitting in the seat of scoffers. I was standing in the way of the wicked. Now, it may not have looked that way. Because I wasn't living a crazy, wild, outrageous life. And sometimes that's how we think of sin, right? We think of it as crazy, wild, living that's a life out of control. But at its core, sin is rebellion against God. At its core, sin is a refusal to submit to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. At its core, sin is a rejection of living for his glory and a desire to live for our own. And to be as clear as I possibly can, apart from Christ, this is exactly how I was living. I was living for my own glory. I was rejecting his reign and rule. I was in full-out rebellion against the Savior. And I did all of that while being a faithful church attender and an overall good guy. Understand this, verse 1 reaches far deeper than we probably think it does. We may not raise our hands and say, oh, that's me. But rest assured, apart from Christ, this is you. The thing is, you don't need to be following the financial advice of the local drug dealer to be walking in the counsel of the wicked. And you don't need to be getting drunk every night to be standing in the way of sinners. And you don't need to be addicted in some sexual way to be sitting in the seat of scoffers. To walk in the way of sinners, to stand in the way of the wicked, to sit in the seat of scoffers simply means that you have not submitted to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. 
And so here's what's a little bit frightening about that. Given my story, given my background, the fact that I was in church and a good person, and yet I was walking in the way of sinners, I would assume that that probably describes some in this room today. You've gone to church for a long period of time, that you're a pretty good person morally, that you know the right thing to do and you do it fairly consistently. Maybe at one point you were baptized, either as an infant or maybe at some point along the road, but you've never actually submitted to the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. And if that's you, Psalm would, the Psalms would say that you're walking in the counsel of the wicked. The only question that matters today is this. Have you submitted to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins and trusted him? Have you been born again? so that you have new desires and a new passion. Now listen, the psalmist would not have understood the full fulfillment of what he was talking about here. On the other side of the cross, he didn't understand that everything he was talking about would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But rest assured, everything he's saying here was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The righteous person is ultimately the one who trusts in Jesus And the righteous one that he's talking about is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was the only one who never walked in the way of the wicked. He was the only one who never stood in the path of sinners. He was the only one who never sat in the seat of scoffers. And so even though the psalmist may not have understood this completely, we understand because he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit that what's saying here ultimately is meant to point us to Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the righteous one. And so here's the difference between the wicked and the righteous. The wicked keep walking in the way of sinners. The wicked keep sitting in the seat of scoffers. But the righteous recognize their own tendency to walk in those ways. And instead they entrust themselves to the righteous one. They entrust themselves to the one who always walked in the righteous path. In other words, they believe in Christ. And when that happens, when that happens, they have new desires and a new heart. In other words, they're born again. And this is reflected in verse 2. The righteous will have new desires. Verse 2 of Psalm 1 says this. Talking about the righteous. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The righteous delight in the law of the Lord. They meditate on it day and night. Now the law of the Lord can mean lots of things. But here it just means the instructions of the Lord. And what we might say, again, on this side of the cross, on this side of the fact that we have the complete canon of Scripture, we would say when we're talking about the instructions of the Lord, we are talking about this book, the Bible. The righteous will delight in this book. The righteous will meditate on this book day and night. And on this side of the cross, here's why. Because as Christians, we understand that this book points us to the hope found in Jesus Christ. In fact, I want you to see this in Scripture. John chapter 5. You can turn there. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Verse 39 of John 5 says this. This is a passage that we've looked at before, and I'm sure we'll look at again because it's important. Verse 39. You search the Scriptures. This is Jesus talking. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is clear. He's saying these words in this book, they point to me. And so here's the reason why as Christians we delight in this book. Because we know that it points us to Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. 
We know that our hope is found in the person of Christ alone. And so we treasure the words of this book because we know that it points us to the only hope we have, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we delight, we treasure, we chew on, we ponder, we meditate on the words of this book day and night. Why? Because it points us to Christ. We know that in the book of Exodus, when the people are spared from the the plague of the death of the firstborn, the Passover, when the blood of the Lamb is on the door, we know that that story is meant to point us to the hope found in Jesus Christ. We know that in the book of Leviticus, when there's a sacrificial system with the animals, we know that that too is meant to point us to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. We know that when David conquers Goliath, and his victory is imputed to all of Israel, that this too points us to the hope in Christ and that Christ's righteousness is given to us. We know that in the story of Jonah, when Jonah's in the belly of the whale for three days and is raised, that points us to the hope found in Jesus Christ. We know that in the story of Ruth, when the line of David is rescued, in this crazy story, that that too points us to Jesus. We know that every page of every book in the Old Testament and the New Testament points us to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, and that is why we treasure this book. Because we love Jesus, and we know that Christ is the only hope we have, and so we dig into this book, and we look for the treasure that is found in His Word. Because we love His Word, and we know that every page points to Him. Psalm 19 says that the words of this book, or His instructions, are more precious than gold or silver. Now, I've used a variation of of this example before, but I think it's worth using again. If I told you that there was gold in your backyard, that there was a treasure that was buried in your yard, and I said, it's there even now, how would you respond? Well, you would go, I would assume, right now to your backyard, and you would start digging. Why? Because there's treasure to be found. So for those of you who claim to follow Christ, let me ask you this. Do you take that same approach to this book? Do you believe that there really is treasure to be found here? Do you delight in this book day and night? Do you meditate on it? Do you find yourself thinking about what the Word teaches as you're going through a situation at work or you're at school or you're with neighbors? Are you thinking and meditating, chewing on the Word of God because it runs so deep in your heart that you can't rid yourself of it, nor would you want to? Is that you? Are you delighting in the Word because you know it points to Christ? Now listen, maybe that's not the case. And if so, I would say that ultimately a lack of desire for the Word shows that you don't quite understand the greatness of the value of Christ. Now maybe, maybe it's because you're a genuine Christian and you've just forgotten His benefits. Maybe you've forgotten how great Christ is and so your desire for the Word is lessened. Or maybe sin has clouded your picture of Christ. And you have this sin, and it's, it's making it foggy. You can't see the greatness of Christ, and so you don't desire His Word. Or maybe you just don't know Jesus. And because of that, you don't value His Word because you don't care to go to His Word because you don't actually know Him. The point is this. The righteous will delight in the law. And again, we're saying that those who are righteous are those who believe in Christ. They're connected to the righteousness of Christ. But because we have new desires and because we love Jesus, we will delight in this book. And so, let me say this. If you are here today and you have no desire to be in this Word, you have no delight in His law, you have no desire to spend time in His Word digging in and finding the treasure, then something is amiss. Something's amiss. Perhaps you're not a Christian 
Or perhaps you are a Christian and you've just lost your way. And, and I'll say this. Either way, I think the response is the same. It's to run to the Word. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and I, if you are here, I just want you to know I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you're here. But if you are here and you're not a Christian, I would just encourage you to go and find a Bible this week. If you don't have one, you can take one from us. You can have my Bible. Either way, we'll give you a Bible. And go and read the Word. Listen, I know that some of you are here today and maybe you've been burnt in the past by churches. Maybe there's been hypocritical Christians that you've met. I don't doubt that that's true. But what I would invite you to if you're a non-Christian is to actually read His Word. And in His Word, you will discover that there is treasure because it points to Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're a Christian, but you do not have a delight in His Word, you do not meditate on it day and night, I would encourage you by faith to believe that if you go to His Word and you dive deep and you dig for the treasure, I would encourage you by faith to believe that eventually that will awaken your slumbering soul. If you are here today and you're just going through the motions, and listen, listen, I I know in a group this size there are many who are just going through the motions. If you are just going through the motions, then I would encourage you to by faith believe that if I keep diving in His Word, and I keep trusting that there's treasure there, eventually it will awaken you. And so I would encourage you, if you're here today and you don't delight, go to his word. Even though you don't delight currently, and believe by faith that as you read more about Christ, and as you see the connections on every page pointing to Christ, it will awaken your soul. Now I will say this, if you're here today, and you are delighting in the word, if you woke up this morning, and you were excited, Because you thought, today I get to go to church. And I get to sing songs about the Word of God. And I get to hear the Word of God preached. And you wake up tomorrow morning and you're excited because you think, I get to read the Bible today. If that's you, praise God. Oh, praise God. I I hope that that becomes the default position for all of us. That we wake up and we think, I get to study the Word of God today. I hope that we wake up on Sundays and we think, what a joy that I get to go with my brothers and sisters in Christ and we get to learn about Jesus together through the Word. I hope that becomes our default position. And if that is you right now, praise God. That is the work of God that you feel that way. Listen, if, if, if this really is a treasure, then the Word of God is not something that we attend to if we have time. If there was a treasure in your backyard, you wouldn't say, you know, I might dig it up today, but I might wait a couple weeks. I I might wait till next year. You would never say that with treasure in your backyard. If you found out there was a treasure in your backyard, you would probably leave immediately. And you would go and you would start digging. Let us not be so casual in our attitude towards the Word. Let us believe by faith that there is treasure in this book. And then let us dedicate ourselves to finding that treasure. Now, one of the things I hear a lot, or people will say something to this effect to me. They'll say, well, isn't it legalism to read the Word when you don't feel like it? And I think it can be legalism. I'll explain that in a second, but I don't think it has to be. It's not legalism to read the Word when you don't feel like it any more than it's legalism to dig for treasure even though you don't like digging. Because by faith, you believe that treasure is there. That's not legalism. That's just being smart. Right? You know, I don't like digging, but I'm going to dig because I believe the treasure is there. By the same token, to read the Word of God when you don't feel like it, it's not necessarily legalism. Now, it is legalism if you think to yourself, I need to read the Word so God will approve of me. 
That's legalism. That's what we mean by legalism. Using the law to justify yourself. And so if you're thinking to yourself, well, I need to read so God will approve of me, that is legalism. As Christians, we know that we are approved only by the work of Christ on the cross. And so do not think to yourself, do not allow yourself to believe the lie that if I just do these things, God will love me more. That is not true. But if on the other hand, you're getting in the word even when you don't feel like it, because by faith, you believe there is treasure here. And you want that treasure even though you don't feel like it. You think to yourself, I'm going to do this and by faith believe that God will awaken my soul. That is not legalism. That's just wise. And so if you're here today and you feel like, you know, I'm not delighting in the word, my encouragement to you would be, well, dive in the word. Understand that you can't be approved. You will not be approved. You're approved only by the work of Christ on the cross. But by faith believe, I'm going to dive in. And even though it's hard and even though it's difficult, I'm going to keep digging. And by faith believe that God will awaken my soul. So listen, it's not legalism to dive in when you don't feel like it. It's just wise. Provided that you have the right attitude, that you're going there with faith, believing that God can awaken your soul. So for those who are Christians, here's the encouragement from Psalm 1. Delight in his word. Meditate on it day and night. Chew on it. Memorize it. Hide it in your heart. This is what the righteous do. And so the psalmist makes this comparison in the actions. He says that the wicked... They walk in the way of the wicked. And they stand in the way of sinners and they sit in the seat of scoffers. But the righteous, they avoid those things because they delight in the word. So that's the first contrast. Now the second contrast is a word picture. So first the psalmist contrasts their actions and then he gives us a word picture that's a contrast. Verse 3, he starts with the righteous. In Psalm 1. Again, verse 3 says this, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. The righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. It's a beautiful picture. When I think of this, I think of a dry and weary land, and yet there's a stream running through that land, and there's a tree planted by that stream. And because the tree is planted by the stream, it continues to grow no matter how dry things get. Now, I think that Tim Keller is right to point out that there's a note of realism in this psalm. As Keller points out, the tree only bears fruit in season. Yes, its leaf does not wither, but there are times where it does not bear the same amount of fruit. Listen, at times, as Christians, there will be times where we're not bearing the same amount of fruit. There will be times where we don't feel the same joy that we usually do. There will be times where as Christians we struggle with anxiety, or we struggle with sadness, or we struggle with anger, or we struggle with depression, or we struggle with discouragement. Now in those times our leaf doesn't wither. In other words, we still stay connected to Christ. But it doesn't mean that as the righteous that we are disconnected or immune from difficulty. Listen, some of you here today, I have no doubt, are slogging through the swamp of despair. And if that's you, don't be discouraged by your discouragement. But instead, entrust yourself to the faithful Savior. Entrust yourself. The leaf ought to still be there. In other words, the belief in Christ ought to still be there, but that doesn't mean that it will be easy. There may be times where it's very difficult to follow Christ. Listen, the one who delights in the law and the one who delights in Christ will be like a tree whose leaf does not wither. Why? Because they're connected to the stream of life. 
because they're connected to Christ. And because of that, the leaf never withers. But that does not mean that things will always be easy. I don't think that as Christians, we should always expect that when we wake up, we'll wake up in the morning and think, today is a great day, and we start singing immediately. Some days we may roll out of bed and we may be miserable. That's just part of living in this life. That's part of living in a dry and weary land. But we should still have a leaf that does not wither. Even in those dark days, we should still be clinging to the hope of Jesus Christ. I don't think we should expect that we'll wake up every day and be cheerful, but I do think we should expect that we will endure. I do think we should expect that we will always stay connected to Christ and that no matter how dry things get, our leaf will not wither. Listen, if if we're that tree planted by streams of water, at times the tree may look a little scraggly. And at times it may look like the tree is going through a little bit of a rough season. But there will always be a leaf there. There will always be that belief in Christ. Now that said, while it's true that as Christians we go through dry seasons, I think we need to point out here that we also do bear fruit in season. And so what we mean is this. There should be at least some times where you do feel this incredible joy at following Jesus Christ. There should be times where you are just spilling over with this excitement about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're just spilling out to people around you. You are telling people about Christ because you believe that this is such great news. Yes, there will be times of difficulty, but there will be times where as Christians we bear incredible fruit. And if that does not happen, if you never have a delight in Christ, if you ever never have a delight in the gospel, if you never wake up and you're never excited about Jesus, then that is an indication to you that perhaps you are not planted by the streams of living water. Perhaps you are not planted in Christ. Because the righteous one, the one that is connected to Christ, will bear fruit in season. And so if there's never any fruit, you have to ask yourself, are you actually planted by the stream? Now again, There'll be times of difficulty, but we should bear fruit in season. And so here's what this means for the righteous. What they do is they delight in the law, they delight in the instructions of the Lord to the point that they run there in both times of difficulty and in times of plenty. The righteous one recognizes that the law or the instructions of the Lord are the hope we have in the times of difficulty and also the joy we have in the times of blessing. Charles Spurgeon says this about the righteous. In the day of his prosperity, he, the righteous one, sings psalms out of the word of God. And in the night of his affliction, he comforts himself with promises out of the same book. Listen, when things are going well, the righteous run to the word of God out of thankfulness because they want to read about the great hope they have in Christ. When things are going poorly, the righteous run to the word of God because they want to be comforted by that same book. Because they believe that there is hope and that all things will never be lost as long as they are believing in Jesus Christ. And so the righteous are like this tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in this season and its leaf does not wither. But that's not true for the wicked. In fact, look at what verse 4 says. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So the psalmist compares the wicked to chaff, which the wind drives away. Now it's probably helpful to define what we mean by chaff here. And so here's my best understanding of how this works. All right, I, I will admit, I'm not an expert on winnowing, which is what he's talking about here. If, if some of you here have a PhD in winnowing, you're probably like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's fair enough, I probably don't. But I'm, I'm going to do the best I, describe, I can to describe what chaff is. So the way it would work is that the farmer would gather the, the crop, the grain, 
and then they would take it to the threshing floor, the winnowing floor, and they would take a winnowing fork, and on a day where it wasn't too windy, they would throw the grain up in the air, and the heavier grain, the kernels, the part they would use would fall back to the ground. It would fall onto the winnowing floor, and that's what they would use. That's what they would eat. But the, the lighter part, the husk, the straw that was useless, because it was a little windy, it would blow away. It would just blow away. That part was called the chaff. The part that was useless, the part that would just blow away, the part that they didn't care about, the part that wouldn't last in the end, was the chaff. The chaff would blow away, the useful part would fall to the ground. And so I think it's fair to say that if the wicked are being compared to the chaff, that is not a favorable comparison. If they are being compared to the useless part of the grain that just blows away and is completely forgotten, that is not a good thing. And in fact, that's the last contrast we see here in this book. There is a difference in the end or the, the lasting destination, the final destination of the righteous and the wicked. There's a difference. Look at verses 5 and 6. There's a difference between the righteous and the wicked and the way they end. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. Sinners will not sit in the seat of the congregation of the righteous. Listen, from Genesis to Revelation, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, there is one story in this book. That God is holy and that we are sinners. That we've rebelled against Him both by nature and by choice. And because of that, we will all face the wrath of God. The righteous and just wrath of God. But God in His love sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus took our sin. He took the wrath that we deserved. He bore that punishment on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead. That if we believe in him, we can be rescued from our sin. This is the story of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now the psalmist wouldn't have been able to articulate the gospel in the same way because he didn't understand yet that Jesus would be the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. But what the psalmist did understand is that eventually the wicked would not stand. He understood that the wicked would not stand. And listen, this is a good reminder for us because the reality is that at times it will appear that the wicked will triumph. Maybe you've seen the undercover videos the last few weeks from Planned Parenthood where they're trafficking the body parts of aborted babies. And we see the videos of those dismembered babies being sold. You have to wonder how long will the wicked triumph? when you see the powerful people in our world using their power for their own good and not for the good of people, you have to wonder how long will the wicked prosper? When you turn on the news and you see stories, atrocities of rape and abuse and sex trafficking and terrorism and murder, you have to wonder how long will the wicked stand? And what the psalmist tells us is, The wicked will not stand forever. They will not stand on the day of judgment. Do not confuse power and influence in this world with power and influence in the coming kingdom of God. Spurgeon says it this way. Spurgeon often does so well. He says, The seat of the scoffer may be very lofty, but it's very near to the gate of hell. So there may be people who have power, but keep in mind the wicked will not stand on the day of judgment. Now, what you also need to keep in mind is that the wicked are not just the child abusers, not just the rapists, not just the murderers, not just the terrorists. 
The wicked are all who refuse to submit to the reign and rule of Christ. In other words, it's all of us. It's all of us apart from Jesus Christ. None of us will be able to stand on the day of judgment. Because the issue again with sin is that ultimately it's rebellion against God. And every person in this room, without exception, I could go around and I could name every person. I would say, apart from Christ, you have no hope. Because you are the wicked. I am the wicked apart from Christ. Because we have rebelled against the reign of Christ. And so there's no hope that we can stand on the day of judgment unless, of course, we've trusted in Jesus. Because only those who trust in Christ can be counted as righteous. And the good news for us who have is that we will stand on the day of judgment. As verse 6 reminds us, the Lord knows us. He knows us. Now this idea that He knows us does not mean that He's just aware of us. It means that He identifies with us and He cares for us. In fact, Galatians says it this way. Galatians 4, 8, 9. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? There's the key phrase there in Galatians. Now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, what that means is that He's come to know us and identify with us as His children. That we've been adopted into His family through belief in Christ. That's what it means to be known by God. And so again, the psalmist would not have recognized that this ultimately would be fulfilled in Christ, but that's exactly what's happening here. The one who's known by God is the one who's known by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's that person who has the hope that they will stand on the day of judgment. Listen, I don't think Psalm 1 could be clearer in the contrast it's making. It's making a clear contrast between the righteous and the wicked. There's two ways to live, and that is it. The righteous way and the wicked way. The question, the million dollar question for you today is simply this. Which way will it be for you? Which way will it be for you? Will you stand in the way of sinners? Will you walk in the way of the wicked? Will you sit in the seat of scoffers? Do you walk around like the rest of the world? Are you living the same way as your neighbors? With the exception that maybe you're just here on church on Sunday? Or is there a radical difference in your life? Are you a person who avoids the way of the world and instead delights in the Word of God? Are you a person who meditates on that Word day and night? Are you like a tree planted by streams of water? This leaf does not wither and who uh, <clears throat> bears fruit in season. Is that you? Or are you like the chaff that the wind blows away, that you have no roots, that you just go with what's popular, you go with what everyone else does? Or are you like that tree that has roots that grow deeper and deeper year after year after year? Which one are you? That's the question. In fact, I could say, at some level, that's the only question that matters, not just today, but every day. Which are you? Are you a person who treasures and walks more like Christ? Or are you a person who walks in the way of the world? Simply put, are you the righteous or are you the wicked? Now the answer to that question could not be more important because the wicked will not stand on the day of judgment. But the righteous will stand forever because they are known by God. Listen, I know that sometimes the choices we have can be overwhelming. Sometimes when you go to the grocery store and you're looking for something, it can be overwhelming to decide what to choose. Last week, 
Tony sent me to the grocery store for olive oil, and I got there, and I realized there's 30 different kinds of olive oil. I didn't know which one to pick. Sometimes when I'm in line at Chipotle, I can't decide what do I want on my burrito. Right? The choices we have can be overwhelming. It can be even hard to select gerbil feeders, for crying out loud. But when it comes to this, the choices are not difficult to understand. When it comes to what Psalm 1 is teaching, the choices are simple. It's either you walk in the way of Christ or you walk in the way of the wicked. Those are the only two choices. My question for you today is which will it be? It's your choice. You can choose whatever you want, but only one choice will allow you to stand forever. Only one choice will allow you to withstand whatever drought may come your way. Only one will end up in life. It's the path of the righteous. It's the path of following Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you once again for your word. We know your word is good. Oh, we love your word. We want to delight in your word. We want to gather around your word today and say, yes, this is true. And we know that ultimately everything the psalmist here is talking about is fulfilled in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. We know that the righteous are those who are connected to Christ by faith. We know that Jesus is the only one who is ever, to, ever able to fulfill this perfectly. And that's why we put our hope in him. And that's why, by God's grace, I pray that every person in this room would make a decision today, if they've never done so, that they would choose to walk the way of the righteous, that they would choose to follow in the path of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.